Fuckers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 36. No Prize from God features conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is director and producer Sergio Navarretta. Sergio is an internationally award-winning director who describes himself as an artist and creator curious about the human condition. In this conversation, we speak a great deal about his 2020 movie, The Cuban, which stars Anna Golja and Louis Gossett Jr., the spiritual power of music, and our relationship with our elders. You can keep up with No Prize From God at noprizefromgod.com, keep up with me at ryanjdowney.com, and support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and writing a nice review on your preferred podcast platform of choice. So here it is, my conversation with Sergio Navarretta. This is No Prize From God. some of these innovations will stay as like a supplement to the traditional ways that we were used to. I think they will because it's, uh, you cut away a lot of the noise, like a lot of the, the nonsense. Like remember the old press junkets in the hotels, mm-hmm. you know, it's like room to room to room. The talent just gets exhausted of like Absolutely. answering the same question, the same time. Like it, it becomes stale. Right. And uh, I've just found this a lot more intimate, you know, cause yeah. you're, sitting, you're having this conversation and, one of my cats could walk by or yeah my dog the, the last interview i did earlier today my dog started barking and i was like That's my dog sorry <laughs> yeah nice. yeah and also i think the way that the the formats i mean we're all consuming whether we're watching uh, an in-depth q and a on youtube or listening to the podcast or i just don't know what world there is for a 4 minute junket interview anymore <laughs> you know or it's like you know, answering the same three questions. Because that really that format was for like the local TV era, right? So you could get all these local TV journalists from their network affiliates all over the country in for a weekend. And then each of them gets to go back to their local station in Kansas and Indiana and wherever. And and it kind of looks like they're hobnobbing with the stars. And But it's all, people want more authenticity. They, they, they see through the veneer of, and I say this again as somebody who, has done those traditional junkets for a long time and has gotten good interviews out of them and stuff. Um, yeah, this is just, I think this is much more 
uh, a better service to the artists themselves, such as yourself and to the audience and, you know, the kind of conversations they would rather listen to. Yeah. I've learned so much about myself during this period. Like I've had to be candid about very personal things and, uh, yeah, I, I, it sort of like reconnected me to the love of cinema. Like what, you know, mm. I've had to, you know, I did one interview, it was an hour long about, you know, how La Dolce Vita changed my life. Like, I mean, those are things you, you pick, I, you know, naively and stupidly picked like the most complex, <laughs> most iconic film of all time. Yeah. Next to Space Odyssey, uh, 2001. It was like, why? Why did I do that to myself? Anyway, but <laughs> it like, was. You're like, next it, time I'm going to talk about uh, Trading Places or Tommy Boy. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Um, although you could really get intellectual about some of, you know, great comedies too. Well, this yeah. is uh, this is somewhere in that living in that same uh, landscape because the concept for this no prize from God is basically conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. And kind of the elevator pitch is that in scanning through the religion and spirituality categories and Apple Podcasts, mm -hmm. you see it's very dominated by right-wing evangelical Christians, uh, new agey self-help stuff, and kind of the militant atheism. And without knocking any of those things specifically, I just thought, well, where are the conversations for everyone else, you know, that aren't coming from a particular faith tradition and also aren't trying to dismantle someone else's view, but more thinking about as someone who has interviewed a lot of filmmakers and actors and musicians, and it's often drawn to movies and music that touches on some of these bigger ideas, whether it's life's big questions, you know, life, death, the afterlife, but to, to even more, you know, living in the present and mindfulness and some things that you've touched upon with this film and identity and, and uh, history and ancestry and, and so many things again that the Cuban is about. Not to, uh, not to spoil our own conversation but that was one of the reasons i thought it would be great to have you on because i feel like so many artists are motivated great artists are motivated by the you know kind of grappling with existential ideas and i'm just very interested in having conversations about where those come from and you know how how, uh, how people see things and, and that sort of thing so and it's been very rewarding so far um you are, I think, the third. I've had a lot of musicians on, and you are the third filmmaker. So I'm excited to more and more uh, directors and stuff on here. So with I'll that... admit to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I confess to nothing. Uh, sure. so with, with all of that being said, certainly something that is consistent throughout your work, and it's you know paramount in the Cuban, but it's all, it also shows up in a lot of other places, is music and the transformative power that music has, the way that we connect to, to other people, the way that we can communicate. And particularly in this movie, when you have someone who is, you know, a character that is trapped in the prison of their mind, and then another character who is trapped in this isolation of life experience and, and all of that and how they connect through music and are able to suddenly communicate, I think is, it's such a great jumping off point. 
what were some of your first introductions to not just music, but the intersection of music and film? And, and what was some stuff that turned you on that, that dealt with, uh, no pun intended, but use music as an instrument in storytelling uh, like this? What were some things you first connected with there? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I have to say that music was my first love, my first language, even before, you know, I, I sort of uh, learned English. Music was like my first. Uh, I was extremely shy as a kid and uh, through my adolescent years. And um, music was my refuge. It was the way that I expressed myself and my emotions. Uh, you know, through through my darkest hours, music was there to lift my spirit. So I was always aware of the power of it. Um, but when I think back and honestly, I haven't thought about this until now, but a lot of the Italian films that I grew up watching with my parents, especially from the uh, Campania region around Naples, it's a very musical culture. Music is so, it's almost like a religion in a way and uh, it's transcendent. And um, yeah, I just remember how emotional there was one scene you know where this guy loses his son and he just breaks out in song and it's just like the tears the music all that and i was a you know i was like four or five years old so I, that that affected me and um and then later on you know like movies like mambo kings and um i hadn't seen la bamba in years uh but i made my seven-year-old watch it the other night and he was actually oh, nice. He was into it, man. He was like, wow, this is like, the, the themes in it are so universal. And, uh, you know, uh, Selena, the movie Selena really affected me. Uh, yeah. Just her story is just so powerful. And, um, you know, Buena Vista Social Club. Mm. Um, music was huge in my life. And, you know, back in the day, not to date myself, but we used to have cassettes and I had the Mambo King soundtrack. And I was just like, da, 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 da. like, it's just like, no matter what mood you're in, it's going to lift your spirits, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just so, so beautiful. And I remember when I met Antonio Banderas the first time, I'm like, Mambo King. And it's like, he's probably never heard that reference in his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the guilty pleasures that kind of shaped uh, how I saw the world. And, and, um, yeah, and I just started to realize how powerful music was for me and how I can use that to affect other people. Yeah, but uh, I love that you mentioned La Bamba. You know, Richie! Uh, that was, that <laughs> exactly. was a film that I was just thinking about literally the day before yesterday. I was watching one of those pawn shop reality shows. It wasn't even so much watching it as it was on in the background. But somebody had brought in a, a poster for what was allegedly that final concert with the big bopper and Richie Valens and Buddy Holly and everything. And I think it turned out to be a fraud. But my point in mentioning that is that I hadn't thought about that movie in a really long time. And just two days ago uh, had, had cause to think about it. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it does touch upon so many universal themes and, and important kind of mile markers that are in a lot of great stories. Um, obviously family is a, is a huge thing in, in that whole story. Um, it's also the, it's like sports, right? It's a great equalizer. You know, mm -hmm. here's this guy, Richie Valens, comes out of nothing, out of poverty, basically, and reaches the height, the pinnacle of success. And uh, music, the music business has allowed people like Elvis Presley and so many others to rise out of poverty into into those positions. And 
and move millions of people. Yeah. I just thought of another one, Crossroads. I don't know if you remember that. Okay, so <laughs> if you could see, if, if you could somehow turn the camera around and see my notes that I have open in case I need them. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's, here's a note that I made. And I don't write so much questions for these kind of conversations. I like to do bullet yeah. points. Here's a bullet point. Plot reminds me a bit of Walter Hill's Crossroads, <laughs> breaking Willie Brown out of the nursing home. <laughs> that's, if you remember, that's like, right? That's like the central, uh, the, the, the inciting event of, of Crossroads is. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And I that, that movie. I haven't even been able to find it because I want my son to see it because he oh, loves that's so great. the car. And uh, it's just really hard to find. I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, again, it, it's so funny that we're, we're talking about it because uh, just maybe a, a couple weeks ago, one of the things I've been doing in quarantine is a couple friends of mine who are, you know, also movie files. We, that the app Plex has a watch together feature, which Netflix has recently added. And I think Disney plus has it also. I think they're launching it around the Mandalorian, but, but basically you can simultaneously queue up the same movie. And so you and however many friends separated in your different houses, quarantining, are watching a film together and then we have a little a group chat where we're all kind of commenting so it's usually things we've seen before and uh we do our own kind of mystery science theater but but we the just, chat function is aside from the app or is it built yes in our, in our case yes we're doing it we're doing it separately but uh you know that's a great question though i wonder if some of those companies have a chat function or if they'll introduce one because i think it's otherwise you're just I guess you meant you mentally know you're watching it at the same time, but if you're not talking to each other, there's uh, no communal effect. Yeah. But we had done, uh, you know, all of us had, had just watched or rewatched the Cobra Kai series, which then led us to rewatching all of the karate kid movies. Right. And then that immediately led into crossroads and uh, everyone that's in that group chat is also a musician or a former musician or musician of some kind. And so, I mean, you know, Steve Vai is in that movie as the devil's guitar yeah. player. And uh, yeah, but yeah, it was similar to you. I hadn't seen Crossroads since I was a kid. And, did it hold uh, up? Like, were you... It did. It yeah. Did. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's always, yeah, that's always the, the concern with <laughs> movies from that, you know, not to date myself either, but for us Generation Xers, right? Uh, these things that we cherished or, or thought of as cool at one point, and then you revisit, you're like, oh... <laughs> Um, yeah, no, this was still cool. Um, awesome. Ralph Macchio doesn't look any more like he's playing guitar than Michael J. Fox did in Back to the Future, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's so it's so interesting you brought that up as a as a as it just occurred to you as a reference point because that was, and you know I wouldn't have connected it to the Cuban had I not watched the two films in such proximity to one another, mm. uh, but having just rewatched. Crossroads before seeing your movie, the the whole plot device of breaking someone out to revisit their their culture and and the music and their life prior to when we meet them in the beginning of the film is very similar in that sense, which is which is very cool. Yeah, it's the whole notion of like if you know after my dad had passed away quite young and. Um, you know, that the whole idea of like, if you can design your final days or your mm. final day, I mean, what a way to go, right? Like the way Luis, just, I mean, it's his final gig essentially. And he goes out with a bang and uh, many, many, many people don't have that opportunity. You know, like it's, 
you know, your time comes and you're gone. It's like, and then everyone around you has, uh, has to deal with the regret of if I had one more day, you know, so. Yeah. I would love to, and this is something you just made me think about. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's coming from a totally different angle and it's a different genre, but the blues brothers, you know, yeah. that, that that's a movie you could also have a, a conversation about the sort of designing a final day because it sort of becomes a final day versus, you know, given how they're on the run from the law and inevitably doomed back to prison, which is a form of death. But then also the, the spiritual component of that movie. It also has mm -hmm. that, like, you know, they're, they're trying to save the, the nunnery, the orphanage. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're just, yeah. they're good Catholic boys. At the end of the day. <laughs> uh, I love the, the quote that I saw from you. You said something about uh, stories that die with us. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is a statement I'd love to explore. Uh, you know, and I've had a lot of thoughts about that myself. Um, my mom passed away when I was young. I was about 11 years old. And my dad, a couple months ago, just turned 81. And he's wow. in good health and everything. But yeah, my dad has had quite a story, right? And multiple siblings and marriages and... Uh, career paths and 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 i've been thinking about that that notion of of yeah the stories that you know when we lose someone that those stories are lost if they aren't you know uh recounted and recorded and and retold uh so yeah if it just i would love to hear more of your your thoughts on that and, and how that tied into what connected with you about the cuban yeah i mean i didn't grow up around a lot of elders. Uh, most of my family was abroad in Europe and Italy and Argentina. So it was like, when my dad passed away, I realized how absolute death is. It's like, mm. you know, so whatever happens the moments before are so become so important. And um, the thing that struck me, I mean, he worked in the labor movement. He had helped thousands of people in his life. Um, I just feel like there's a massive chunk of that history that's now gone forever. Um, so that, that sort of brings me to the whole idea of our relationship with our elders in North America. Like, you know, in most countries, the elders live in the village, in the town square, they share stories, they're far more integrated into society than, um, than we're accustomed to, you know, like, uh, mm. you know, in Canada where I grew up, it's, you know, they re people reach a certain age, they go into a nursing home and then, you know, you have, uh, households, everybody's working, everyone's busy. So there isn't really an opportunity to bring our elders into our lives. And uh, so that's, those were some of the themes and things that were running through my mind as we were prepping for the Cubans. So I had a lot of, um, I guess, drive to, to tell the story because it was cathartic for me. It was a way of dealing with something that was uh, traumatic and painful in my life. Yeah. And I think that's what great art is, right? And that brings you back kind of full circle to music and the way that it can help you experience the world around you and and i think also uh, exercise and and uh exercise in the like exorcism sense right like process different emotions and different things that you're feeling and you know through the through that medium and yeah i think yeah, that's where... music i think music bypasses the cognitive process so mm. you know whatever attachments or thoughts you have in your head as soon as there's a certain rhythm or music being played, especially like Afro-Cuban jazz that has deep roots in Africa and, and, 
you know, combined with flamenco guitar from Spain, like when that fusion of music, it just like, no matter what's it's, I can't equate it to anything else. Like it really, when you listen to a great piece of music, it is a spiritual experience. It's like, um, you know, it's what drugs are to some people. I think mm -hmm. that's how I feel about music. It just bypasses all the, all the stuff, all the thinking and, and it just connects to your heart immediately. And, and, uh, it has that power to evoke feeling and emotion quickly. Um, yeah. Which is I, amazing. I, I would, I would even, I would argue, and of course I'm sure this isn't, this is far from an original thought, but this is why music is such a huge part of so many faith traditions, you know, whether it's Gregorian chants or whether it's Christian hymns or, you know, when you think about, uh, vikings charging into battle with these like great odes to the gods and uh, you know just the way that it, it can set a mood or or change a mood or conjure something for lack of a, of a better term you know there there really isn't much that you know there's visual art which you see you know gorgeous mosques and cathedrals and temples but man you put just a couple of notes of music <laughs> in one of those rooms. And I think that really transforms the, the shared experience, just like being, yeah. at a con being at a good concert, you know, or, or watching a good film with a group of people as opposed to in your bedroom <laughs> during quarantine. <laughs> and much like music, those solitary experiences with film have their own power also. Is, yes. Do the, the shared thing. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I don't know. Have you played in a band? I, I did. Yeah. When I was younger. Yeah. So that yeah. feeling of the notes, the rhythm, like it all coming together, when you experience that for the first time, it's, it's addictive. Like it's, it's one of those feelings that just never goes away. Yeah, and there's, some, there's also something right about the, uh, you've been in a band too, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> there, there's something about the connection that you forge with the other people you're playing with that, you know, there, there's reference points, right? Like you can compare it to family. You can compare it to sometimes you hear people being in a band is like being in a marriage and yeah, but there's just, it's so unique. It's like you share something with that person that no one else will understand that goes with you no matter where you go in life. And yeah, when I think about people that I played with throughout my late teens and twenties, uh, those are just bonds that are almost indescribable. And I think part of that is because you are, I mean, it's got to be right because of the moments that you're able to capture collectively in the performance that transcends, you know, what it's like when you get back in the van together. <laughs> yeah. you know? It's a, it's, it's sort of like a language, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's a form, it's a way of communicating. It's, uh, it's almost like sharing a great meal. Like a, it's, mm. I think so many different art forms you can share collectively and, and have an experience, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, you, I was also reminded when you said, you know, a lot of uh, spiritual practices incorporate music. I, um, I grew up Catholic and I was always like just bored to tears with the, I mean, you know, you have the organ and sometimes yeah. a choir, but it's like so somber and morose, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, um, you know, it just is what it is. And the first time I went into like a, I went into a Baptist church I was like, there's drums here. There's like yeah. music. People stand up and they scream and they like emote and like, wow, this is more like aligned with my culture. Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
the part of Italy where I'm from, if you, even today, you screen a movie, people will shut at the screen. Like there, it's, you know, like it's one of those things that I just love. And uh, so that's what that, the Baptist church was like for me the first time I experienced it. I was like, wow. Yeah. More immersive, more participatory, less yeah, yeah somber. Better, right. Like you could just scream if you want to, you can sit, you can stand, you can clap, you can shout. Like it's, wow, that's expression. That's how I'd like to express my faith. <laughs> yeah. And that, and, that, and that's putting your full body into the, into the experience. Yeah. And there's something to be said to play, I guess devil's advocates, the wrong phrase, but there's something to be said for reverence. And, but yeah, I had a similar experience because I grew up uh, Catholic on my dad's side and Presbyterian on my mom's side. And the, the, the Catholic experience was very somber, as you said, and, and pretty boring when you're a kid and a lot of ritual and, and this and that. And then on the Presbyterian side, I remember taking a friend with me to church once when I was little, like a friend who had spent the night and his family were devout Catholics. And I have this vivid memory of, you know, I mean, I'm talking like second grade of him looking up at the cross in our Presbyterian church and asking, where's Jesus? You know, like it's, why is there, there's just crosses everywhere, but Jesus isn't on any of them, you know, and that had never even occurred to me. And then I remember asking my mom about it. And my mom said, well, because we worship a living God, we don't want to, you know, and, but then the yeah. whole other notion of that, right. Coming from the Catholic side of, of no being reminded of the, the sacrifice. And the, uh, it, it's, it's very emblematic of, you know, try as we might to arrive at some sort of certainty and, and, truth there are always different angles of even even something there are so many commonalities there there's so many different ways of looking at it and as i get older I, I that's more what i'm interested in and more what i'm excited by are the the rough edges and the messiness and the contradictions and the mm. and the questions i find that so much more fascinating in the movies that i watch and the music that i listen to and in and exploring these kind of conversations and these kind of ideas that that's it, instead of being fearful of that and trying to find something definitive and rigid, it's just completely turned me around, you know, to just be more yeah. uh, in the moment. And that's something that I saw that you had spoken about in regards to this movie as well was for the filming that you did in Cuba, that the, the culture and that the people that you met and sort of the attitude that you encountered was one that was very people living in the present and not so focused on, you know, tomorrow <laughs> for lack of a better word and, and that you know and that's something that uh well-to-do uh, privileged folks spend lots of money to have someone teach them <laughs> how yeah. to be right um yeah. but yeah if you could expand on that a little bit i'd love to hear to hear more about uh what you encountered there and and what what, what uh, you took away in terms of your own life yeah, I mean, you know, my dad being in the labor movement was a huge fan of Cuba and socialism and the whole thing. And I, I just, I, you know, I thought it was ridiculous. And we, we used to have a lot of debates about it. And uh, so I went there with my own preconceived notions. Like, I really wanted to hate it uh, mm. for so many reasons. And I was just, um, the first few days were really frustrating because you go in with this kind of arrogant North American mindset of like, here's my First AD, he has a plan. He's going to communicate that plan. My cinematographer's here. We're going to, you know, translate in two languages. This is what it is. This is what we're doing. And uh, and I realized they just like, they'll sit there and just kind of look blank faced and nod. Uh, but then the next day they're like, 
what's this movie about? Like they just, you know, like it's really, they don't have the luxury of thinking about tomorrow. Uh, they're, they're forced into the present moment because it's like survival. It's like, how yeah. do we survive today? And because of that, they, they, they have a very free and carefree way of, of being in the world. And, uh, and that was liberating for me, but I had to get used to the rhythms of that. And at a certain point I had to just, you know, drink Cuban rum, smoke the cigar and say, you know what, we don't have a location. So, you know, so be it. What do we have and how can we make it work? And, um, they're very innovative and creative because of that. Right. So I asked, you know, we asked for light bulbs in the nightclub. Can we change light bulbs? Can we be, you know, and they're just looking at us like, no. So, uh, what about diffuse? Like we need to diffuse smoke to give it that 1950s feel. And uh, I just remember this guy coming, cutting a pop can and putting something in it and burning it and there was smoke. And he went to the return air thing, turned on the air conditioning and the whole room was diffused. Like they'll find ways to get it done. It's just not the way that you would expect. Um, So, and a lot of the things that I was forced to rethink, like her going in the water, all the beach stuff, all those shots really came out of... um, just sheer frustration, just not knowing what I'm going to do. So I'm laying in bed and then ideas just started coming to me. And uh, I realized, man, if you ever want to write a novel or a memoir or, or a screenplay, that's the place to do it. I mean, it's no coincidence that people like Hemingway found their mojo there. Like it's just uh, something magical about it. And, um, and the fact that they've been able to transcend racial barriers, like Mm -hmm. there's no real, sense of uh, racism there that I was aware of. I mean, the music speaks for itself. It's, it cross, it just transcends all those barriers in a very beautiful way. Yeah. But you know what else I'm reminded of? Oh, you mentioned Hemingway, uh, Hunter S Thompson, uh, the rum, the rum diet. <laughs> you also mentioned yeah, yeah. <laughs> drinking down there. <laughs> yeah. The rum diary. That's uh, yeah. Another <clears throat> wild creative person going there and, and experiencing uh, inspiration via via the atmosphere and the attitude yeah and, and it, it's unique in that people are generally highly educated so their museums i mean it shocked me that they took an old warehouse and turned it to, into this thing called fabrica dell'arte and you line up and i look over and there's someone in their 70s 15 year olds like everybody from all walks of life they're all there it's accessible to everyone it's not just the elite or the the wealthy you know uh and uh, just like culturally and artistically, they're just super, super uh, highly educated and cultured people. So it's, that part is amazing. And I like that idea of, you know, that you touched on, uh, you know, the whole, the old maxim about necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And that comes up a lot in conversation on this podcast, even the idea that, you know, you can take, John Carpenter's original Halloween. And I think a huge part of the brilliance of that is that it was just a couple of weeks in a neighborhood in Pasadena. You know, there's these limited resources and this very, uh, a lot of things that, that happened that were creative decisions that were also made as a result of restrictive circumstances. Yeah. And then you can, you know, and not to knock any of the other iterations of the film, but, but going forward, you can have sequels and remakes and everything that have so many more, resources at their disposal and just aren't as cool <laughs> and it's uh it's not to say that you can't make something cool with huge resources because of course you can but you know it's 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 interesting to me though 
and I suppose you could say the same thing a lot of, about a lot of great records, right? Where, uh, you know, some, some amazing album was made and on $3,000 and, you know, <laughs> six albums later, that same band is in the studio for a year and puts out something that doesn't connect in the same visceral sort of way. Yeah. I think when you're pushed, that's when, not always, but oftentimes if you're wired the right way, when you're pushed, that's when a lot of the creativity happens for sure. And uh, when I look at films like Rocky, I, I, for me, the original was the best. Mm -hmm. And I think for years they tried to replicate it in the following, you know, mm. I think, you know, Star Wars is a hard example because I think everyone, it's so subjective. Some people like the original, some people like the new, you know, the, the newer films and uh, yeah, it's, but like, yeah, the, I think the heart in a movie like Rocky, even Sylvester Stallone, I think has admitted it that you just like when you're selling your dog, cause you can't eat and like that kind of heart and passion you can never replicate that when you, you know, drive in in a Lamborghini and you have like <laughs> yeah. 20 handlers. It's just, yeah. Different. Yeah. And sometimes there's great art that comes out of that. I mean, Rocky three, which is, I don't want to, I don't want to call it great art, but, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, that kind of dealt with, uh rocky's got the money and the success and he gets too comfortable and yeah uh you know or sometimes when, edge. Uh, yeah and or when bands make those records that are very avant-garde and experimental and they're not trying to recreate what they did when they were 18 but yeah you bring up an interesting point and a conversation that i was having just yesterday with a good friend about sequels in general and, and i think part of what makes rocky great is that it's a self-contained story. It didn't necessitate sequels. And there's a lot of things I love about a lot of parts of different Rocky sequels and all of that. But yeah, I think the original remains the best because it had something to say. It had a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And that was the story. You know, it was like a great episode of The Twilight Zone, right? Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, the original Nightmare on Elm Street is another great example. If you were to get rid of that last, you know, 90 seconds or whatever that the studio had, Wes Craven tack on so they could make sequels that story that original just as a self-contained it's over and it has a really yeah. great point to it and you know there's a great scene where Nancy uh tells Freddie she doesn't believe in him anymore and she turns her back on him and he lunges at her and disappears and like that's the end you know or there should have been the end and and that that isn't to say that interesting things weren't done in different sequels but mm. uh yeah and something like Star Wars is in terms of storytelling, I think that prequels and in-between chapters and things like that, that's a whole different approach because you're, you're really filling in blanks on something that you already know that you love and a story that's kind of yeah. already been told. But yeah, figuring out, uh, I would, you know, without getting into the whole Star Wars debate, you know, I think the, the problem with the sequel trilogy was that there wasn't a plan the plan was just let's make Star Wars. Let's make yeah. it feel like Star Wars and look like Star Wars, and and yeah. uh, and they succeeded in that regard. But without, uh, here's the story that we want to tell. Here's here are the themes. Here's the yeah. Here's the point of it. Without without having that, you know. And and it's like if you were to, <laughs> if someone were to say, were to task you with making the Cuban two, it's like well, oh God, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You've, you've you've told the story and that and that's something yeah that fascinates me because when you get into serialized storytelling uh, i had someone explain to me once and they sent me some essay but how the, the point of the essay was was that 
Lois Lane has to always forget that Clark Kent is Superman. Mm. So no matter what happens in the Superman story and, you know, Jimmy Olsen gets killed and Lois and Clark get married or, you know, this and this, it all has to eventually inevitably at some point reset to those familiar tropes and to that initial setup. You know, it's like why the, why Bart Simpson doesn't age, you know? And yeah. Yeah. I, 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 as much as I admire that kind of serialized storytelling, as much as you can do exciting things in there, I think that uh, not to get way too esoteric, but I almost wonder if it's part of us struggling with our mortality that we don't, that we, that we're, that we're so uncomfortable with a closed loop on a story these days. You know, there, yeah, always has, there always has to be the next chapter, the next part of the story, the next, or the familiarity of. Well, the familiarity characters. is comfort, right? Like that's why my son keeps revisiting Star Wars and now Mandalorian, and like mm. it's just bringing back the feeling, the initial feeling that you had when you saw the first one. It's you know, like I don't know. I guess if they make Godfather four, I'd line up <laughs> to see it because <laughs> I get to. I get to re-experience some of those feelings all over again, as bad as it, it would be, you know, it's, uh, it's, it just is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I wanted, I wanted to touch on Sorry, And this is kind of what we do here. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I, I did, I, I did want to touch on one of the themes of the Cuban uh, to me is identity in that, you know, from the sort of spiritual standpoint, right. Of the difference between, you know, what are the things that make us who we are? Is it our memories? Is it uh, the way we look at other people? Is it, you know, is it purely chemicals and brain tissue? Is it some kind of spirit or soul or whatever? And I think particularly when dealing with degenerative brain disease and, and type of conditions that rob someone of their, their personality and their memories. And, uh, and I know that there were other folks associated with the film that had loved ones who had dealt with dementia and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what were your thoughts on that? I realize that's the broadest question of all time, but, <laughs> but your thoughts on, <laughs> you know, because one of the, one of the great, probably the greatest thing that I like about your film is that it, you know, through, that connectivity that they experience via music, a different part of who this person is and was reemerges without mm. taking the cheat of sidestepping of, you know, suddenly he's cured of dementia, you know, because uh, that, that would be the cheap, easy way to tell the story. But I like that this did it uh, in a way where it's like, no, the, the important parts of who this person is, is in there. It's just in a cloud and you have to have the right pair of glasses to see it or something. I don't know. I, I'm just curious on, on your thoughts on all that. Well, I think part of it is uh, the strange thing. I mean, this may sound odd. It changed my perspective. Uh, I went into a nursing home. I met uh, an aging musician artist who had dementia, didn't know where he was, completely catatonic. And when his wife was playing music to him and singing to him, he came back to life and he started reciting poetry and singing opera. It was the most romantic, most beautiful thing. And I was just witness to it. I was just like in the corner watching this whole thing go down. And I said, man, you must have lived a, a, just an incredible life as a couple. And she said, no, he was, he was a tyrant. <laughs> you know, in some, wow. way, yeah. some ways, the dementia stripped away all his angst, all his rage, all his disappointments, and just brought it, distilled it down to the purity of, 
who the guy was. And uh, so that was for me, the silver lining. She said, it's not, we shouldn't only focus on the, the depressing, sad parts of Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, you know, the, there are silver linings if you look for them. And uh, that was one of the most beautiful examples that I saw. And mm. I think at our essence, you know, I mean, there's evidence of it. Our bodies change, you know, we, we age, our hair changes, everything changes, our phys- physiology. You know, they say our bones regenerate after whatever amount of time. And so there must be a constant in there that is more than just body mass and cells. And, you know, so that, I mean, you know, everyone has their own beliefs, of course. Uh, but even being atheist is a belief, you know, or belief in something. Yeah, a belief, um, a belief, a belief in non-belief. <laughs> a belief in non-belief. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've lived enough life and seen enough crazy things and so-called coincidences and serendipity. I mean, there's only so, so many times you can say, "Well, that was wild. How yeah. did that happen?" Uh, yeah. So I have, you know, the, I mean, I have my own kind of philosophy on it, but I think deep down inside, we there's a soul or something like an essence that is apart from our thoughts and our bodies, our physical matter. And uh, in some ways, and I learned this from, a, from an Aboriginal teacher, it's just like we carry in our DNA, the pain, the sorrow, the burden of our ancestors. And mm. uh, that explained a lot to me because, you know, I grew up in Canada, all my ancestors are, most of them in Italy. And I have taken on some of their traits without even ever meeting the people and Mm. then finding this out later. So how does that happen? You know, some of this information is being carried somehow through our DNA. Like, so I know there's a lot more to this life than, than we think. And uh, I think the more still we get and this pandemic has helped, we get to go back inside because, you know, this is an inner game more than it is an outer journey. And, uh, the more we understand that, the the better off we'll be. Because if not, we become tormented as artists. None of this makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, it's, when I look at people like Quincy Jones and even Michael Jackson, Oprah, they all had that unshakable faith that was the, their foundation. And, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, Quincy Jones used to say, you could sit in the studio all night, but leave the door open a crack, that 20%, to let God in or the, the, you know, whatever the, the God of creativity or whatever that thing is mm-hmm. that people are channeling. Uh, you know, if we think we're in control of all this, I mean, that that's arrogance at its, at its height. Like, I mean, there has to be more to this. Like we're hurling through space right now, right? <laughs> like in a massive eternal universe, like what is it all about? Like, I, I don't know, but I know that other masters that I've, loved and admired like Kubrick you mm. know they were all searching um, mm. they all came from a religious base like Fellini yeah and, and probably became cynical about humankind at some point and then the rest of their artistic journey was about searching for that hope you know Gosh, yeah and it's so funny because yeah the same I mean those are you know uh, Kubrick especially is one of my most beloveds and yeah, there's something so relatable about that search and that that struggle and that that want and the need for to see patterns and organization in things. 
Um, and, and yeah, and what you said about the ancestral thing too is, is fascinating to me because that's something I haven't explored that much in my own thought process about belief. Uh, and yet, you know, I've never visited Ireland, but my family's Irish Catholic and there are, as you said, there's traits and attitudes and ideas and things that, you know, yeah, that you, you find are, are, yeah. And it's like, where does that come from? I wasn't taught. It's just, it is sort of innate. Um, some of these just traditions and, and yeah, how much of that is DNA and spiritual. I also like what you said about uh, that we aren't our thoughts because I think that even if, you know, even those of us who aspire to see ourselves as more than the flesh, we then think in terms of like who we are, our, our thoughts and our personality, our likes and dislikes. And uh, yeah, it's, but it's gotta be more, it's gotta be beyond that even because much like in the Cuban, you can lose that part of yourself, uh, but still mm. be who you are. The essence of who you are is still there. Not like in the Casa Junior character, you know? The moral dilemma that a lot of people face is sometimes their loved one has is completely catatonic for 20 years. I know of one example. Um, is that person there? You know, mm. like, do you pull the plug? Like, what, you know, what do you do? Um, and I, I don't think it's our call to, to say, like, if the person's there in body and waking up and eating and functioning, there must be something in there somewhere. Uh, so I, yeah, I think giving up on people too quickly would be a mistake. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, your family history uh, with your father and the labor movement, as you were talking about Quincy Jones and so on, and, and these great masters of, of film and music and, and their own spiritual motivations. That's something that I've seen uh, throughout any experience that I've had with activism and, and all of that through my life is that the activists who were motivated by some kind of core principles, you know, whether it's a, a Malcolm or, you know, going down the list, Joan of Arc, <laughs> yeah. you know, whether she was hearing voices, uh, they were driven by things unseen as well as, as things seen and, and kind of principles that, that were unshakable in that sense, even if they came wrapped in doubt and, and contradiction. Mm. And so that's something, you know, baby with the bathwater, right? When you see a lot of uh, progressive movements in particular, so ready to do away with religion for the right reasons, because it's, it's the terrible things about it that they, that they're rejecting, <laughs> but then throwing out every aspect and every element of it and everything about it that has powered humankind all this time, uh, I think is to do a real disservice to those progressive causes. You yeah. Know, when, when those, those voices are excluded from the conversation. Yeah. So that's interesting. I, I'm curious, even, I'm sure you've seen all sides of that. If, if you, you know, had that, that family history uh, with the labor movement and, and that sort of thing. And like you said, Cuba, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. we think of, we think of Cuba, you know, we think of the communist states as atheist states. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yet you can't convince me that Cuban people aren't spiritual. <laughs> that no. even, or, or if you think about like the Rus the Russian Orthodox thing, how that has, how that continued to, persist uh, in the margins and, and underground yeah. during the whole Soviet era and uh, that stuff like you can't squash it tries you well, might. My dad, yeah my dad formally you know detested organized religion like it's probably 
the reason why he left Italy in the first place. Um, but I know he was searching, you know, so it's not that he didn't believe. I think it was more the idea of the church as an institution. Um, but that has nothing to do with one's belief in God or not, you know, so. Absolutely. Um, I think there's just been so much contradiction in, in the church and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, they're sitting on billions of dollars, like our, I mean, the Catholic church, right? Mm-hmm. So when I see people saying, oh, the Pope, and it's like, you know, at the height of the pandemic, there were people starving to death. So like, open your coffers, that's the time to be Catholic or, or you know, spiritual. <laughs> it's like Absolutely. when your, your devout followers are starving to death, throw them a bone, you know, like, yeah. It's those kinds of things that, that would, that drives you crazy or the rampant, you know, pedophilia or whatever, but that should never be, um, that should never be an excuse to not, um, you know, embark on, or, or at least own up to your own spiritual journey. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Has nothing to do with the other. And the institution thing, you know, as you mentioned, and, and, the really ugly dark side of, of Catholicism in particular that has emerged not to single Catholicism out, but just in our own experiences and everything, you know, in, I have, I have children also and in deciding what they would be raised with in terms of belief and, and that sort of thing. You know, my attitude has been expose them to as much as possible. And yeah. when they're at a point to make their own decisions about things, that's, that's the beauty of it. And I was, there were some people in our family who were pushing for them to do baptism and to be reared in the Catholic. And I was like, you know, if there was another organization with the same kind of news stories, right. Popping up in the headlines, would we as parents go, yeah, I'll send my kid to that summer camp. (laughs) Of course we wouldn't, you know? And, and, and that was ultimately for all of the pros and cons. And that was ultimately where I, yeah. on the side of no we're not i'm not going to do that we're not going to it's it's, well, make, there, it's there for them to investigate later and there's people in the family who can demonstrate to them a great example of what that belief can do positively yeah but to enroll in an institution <laughs> you know that even had like one percent of what they've had you wouldn't do it you wouldn't risk it in any other scenario so i would why you make a good point i mean we get we get so upset if like starbucks says or does anything you know that's like uh counter you know whatever social norms uh but if they did anything uh, even close to what has happened in the catholic i mean nobody would go to starbucks exactly oh man and 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 i i this comes up on the podcast believe it or not more more than once but uh you know when you think about and us being of a similar age i think you think about Sinead O'Connor ripping up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and what a provocative and culturally divisive, you know, even folks who were more open-minded and into free speech and that sort of thing were still just aghast and appalled. Mm. And and now, what through the hindsight of history, knowing that that was specifically what she was protesting, the stuff we're talking about, that exact issue was why she ripped up the picture of the Pope. Then it's like... Suddenly she looks uh, much less offensive and loony and much more prescient and uh, vital, you know, like yeah. now, now you can look back on that moment and be like, wow, what a badass. 
Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah, exactly. of like, what an asshole, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the things, I mean, the things I appreciate are tradition. Like I, I love, you know, on Sunday mornings, uh, making my sauce, it, it's comfort. Right. And it's same thing with, with some of our religious, um, rituals and, you know, so my son who just turned eight, you know, some of that is important to him and it gives him mm-hmm. that sense of comfort, that sense, sense of belonging and being a part of something. Um, but ultimately it'll be his choice. I mean, we're all on our own path and on our own journeys and all we can do is expose them to, uh, as much, like you said, as possible. Like, you know, I've been to India many times. If, you know, I've meditated in Hindu temples and ashrams and Buddhist temples and like, I'll find God or that, whatever that is in different places. It doesn't have to be at a Catholic church. It could be at a rock concert, you know, like that's, where I connect or I feel that, that sense of connection. Um, so hopefully he'll find it, you know, for himself. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to have some kind of foundation, um, yeah. Without getting too wrapped up in the, in the politics. Yeah, man. And I I invited you onto the podcast before I knew about Aboriginal teachers and, uh, (laughs) When you said the thing earlier about how I should, our have, said in, I should have said indigenous, I have to be it's politically correct. First Nations. Well, I, you know, First one thing, one things that one thing that I learned in the activist community as a teenager and and young adult uh, encountering a lot of First Peoples in North America, mm-hmm. I was told just call us Indians. That's what you called us. You know, you think about Leonard Peltier and the American Indian movement and how they were just like, no, 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 you guys, you don't get to change the name now. (laughs) You know, if you're not going to go by the, by our, our true tribal name, then we're American Indians. uh, Anyway, that's an interesting side note. But uh, when you said the thing about our bodies regenerating themselves every so often, so "Ah," because that was an idea that I encountered first uh, through Krishna consciousness, uh, knowing people that were in the music scene that I met that were devotees of uh, what, you know, the airplane movies would call the Hare Krishna movement, but was actually you know, rooted in a much broader tradition than that. But that's yeah. where I first heard that, you know, well, of course, reincarnation, our bodies reincarnate entirely every seven years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and like, well, I guess you have a point. Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. And, and, you know, and to say something very positive about the Catholic tradition, there's certainly so much of the iconography that I find fascinating. There's so many stories of martyrs and saints that are cool. And yeah, you know, you really hit the nail on the head. Like when you were talking about Kubrick and some of these, these folks who are reared in certain traditions and then struggle with it and then are searching because my cynicism about people and then my search for hope in spite of that cynicism, it's embodied every day. And like, just as we're having this conversation just a couple of days ago, there was news that the current Pope uh, seemed to have endorsed same-sex civil unions. And the optimist in me goes, man, you know, considering how slow those traditions are to move and how important they are to so many people and this and that, that is a really progressive, amazing step forward for humanity and culture. And then the cynic in me goes, uh, cool like american politics caught up to that like a decade ago you know what i mean like we're and you're still not oh we're at the civil union stage you know yeah yeah <laughs> i didn't even pay attention i just like yeah it just looked to me like a a pr job and uh 
anyway. Uh, well, yeah, and oftentimes they always they always walk it back super fast, right? Because there was the one a few years ago when uh, he said something that really seemed to indicate he believed atheists would go to heaven. And then you immediately had cardinals and, you know, everybody down the chain of succession. Like, oh, well, that's, not, that's not what he meant. That's, uh, it's not, he was trying to say something else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Go back in the room. <laughs> yeah. And that's where you get it. You know, that's where all of these traditions run into trouble, whether it's uh, non-denominational evangelical churches, whether it's the Krishna consciousness movements. Uh, when you start, when it becomes a cult of personality, when it becomes too attached to a fallible human figure. Yeah. I think that's the ultimate danger of all this stuff. So. And again, I'll go back to my earlier point. This is a, an inner journey. It's a solitary journey. It's not like nobody can take you there. You have to find it for yourself. Mm. And that's, I guess that's the rub, right? Like we're all looking for it in a book or in a guru, but it's really, you know, it's something we have to discover on our own. And, but, um, but honestly, there's sparks of it, and to bring us full circle, there's sparks of it, there's flashes of it in things like your film, The Cuban, and in, in those, those, absolutely, man, and those, and those, those, those transformative, transcendent moments, and you, know, you think about monks and, uh, you know, people who, have, who devote their lives, right, to having those flickers of experience. And, and sometimes the rituals and processes and hard work that it takes to get there. And that mm. makes, and that makes me so thankful for the art that can move me in that way, mm. you know, cause it is, it, it, it feels like a cheat in a good way, like the cheat codes <laughs> get a little, a little flash of that. And it makes you continue to trudge through, you know, subpar and mediocre and, and banal movies <laughs> because yeah. you know, once in a while you're going to get, you're going to, get that moment again chase that high i guess like a like a drug user like i said <laughs> um so you said your son just turned eight yeah yeah, yeah my, mine turns eight in april so <laughs> right there in the in the in the same and then my daughter will be 13 at the end of this year which is wow totally wild Congrats. teenage years is yeah here we go but uh, here we go yes she's, she's pretty awesome so I'm, I'm not i'm not that worried um I we'll still so do better than we have yes that's the idea, right? I'm hopeful. They're, they're a lot more confident, assertive, and focused, even though they have, you know, the attention span of a bird uh, with all these <laughs> devices and, and whatever. But, yep. uh, yeah, ultimately, they'll change the world for the better. Indeed. And, you know, and, and if we can break our arms, patting ourselves on the back just a little bit, I saw a tweet from someone this morning uh, talking about current generation and... and uh, from an optim from a point of optimism and hope. Mm -hmm. And the tweet pointed out, you know, I think this might mean that generation X that we've been better parents than the baby boomers were. <laughs> and I'd never well, thought of that until I saw that tweet this morning. And I was like, yeah, I suppose for all of our messiness and flaws, I suppose there's, there's some truth to that. While we're hugging and telling them we love them and we're proud of them. 30 times a day, uh, as opposed to being, as opposed to never, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as opposed to, yeah, never. Exactly. One extreme to another. Yeah. yeah. Emotional withholding. No, I'm going to smother <laughs> you with it. Yeah. Oh man. So, so true. I just hope that, uh, we haven't softened them up too much. Yeah. And, you know, just, yeah. Hopefully um, they'll be prepared for the realities of this world. Yeah, man. It's always, it's always, it's always the battle to keep my, uh, inner Don Draper at bay and to stay, <laughs> and to stay engaged in that. 
you know, not being emotionally distant and not being, it's so funny, by the way, when I don't, I don't know if you were a Mad Men fan, but whenever, when I reference that character, it's like, I'm not talking about being good looking. I'm not talking about being drunk. I'm not talking about being a philanderer. <laughs> I'm talking about what that show was actually really about, which was this yes. damaged, uh, driven, you know, shaped by childhood and emotionally withdrawn and distant. And anyway, the, the, the beauty of that show to me was summed up in a single scene, which was him and one of his mistresses, driving drunk about to get into an auto accident and just before it happens the woman's got like the window down and she's leaning out into the wind and she says i feel so alive i've never felt you know this and this and that and then it, you know camera it, it cuts over to don who's driving and he just says i don't feel anything at all <laughs> and it's just like man that is cool that is that show <laughs> I know it's the 60s, but it, it feels a lot like now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think... We're, we're, we're light years away from the 70s. If you think about the movies of the 70s, Serpico and Dark yeah. Day After Dinner yeah. and Chinatown. And yeah, we're light years away from that, but we're getting there. I think this pandemic is bringing us closer. Totally, man. Um, well, this has been invigorating. This is, this is the kind of stuff where I'm like, all right, I carved out something cool with my life. I get to have conversations like this. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I appreciate you making the time to do this. And um, Thank you, man. Happy, happy to share the love of this film and, and what it has to say about who we appreciate are it. and how we connect. And, um, and yeah, and, and without even getting into representation and how, um, what a big part of this story representation is uh you know how often do we see the story of an afghani person <laughs> period <Yeah. laughs> in, a a in a desert or like yeah know, blowing somebody up or whatever it's totally you know, such a beautiful culture so it was yeah. uh, it was a joy for me to to you know do a deep dive into that culture and, and represent it as authentically as i could and without getting into the obvious downsides that are done to death one of the things that I've always been fascinated by with the Afghani culture is the resilience. There's just no, and when you think about the fact that the two biggest, most powerful empires to ever exist in human history could not conquer that place. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Soviet Union True. more or less collapsed because they spent so much time and blood and money trying to dominate the Afghani people. And then America's been there how long, you know, and, and again, that's not to say that, that by no means am I championing the, you know, but it's, but the resilience just, there's obviously something there that's inherent in that culture and in the people of that region that just can't be broken. You know? well, it's an ancient culture and it's so rich and uh, progressive in, in so many ways. So those types of cultures you'll never destroy, you know, like it's been around for forever and ever and ever. And so they, there is some kind of survival thing built into them that uh, will continue on and on. So, yeah. And that's, that's also probably, uh, I mean, it's definitely your Italian and my Irish talking, <laughs> you know, as yeah. two cultures that, uh, I mean, in the scale of human history, when you think about how fast everything actually happens, you know, Italians and the Irish are thought of as, as clearly very assimilated and in a, in a lot of ways privileged yeah. in America. But that certainly was not the case when either of our people got here. Hell no. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> and it was not that long ago um, in the scope of, humanity, yeah. you know, five seconds ago. So, uh, yeah. Um, 
Sergio, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, man. It's been uh, a real pleasure. Yeah, likewise. And I hope we get to do it again sometime. Thanks, man. And uh, go see the Cuban. Look at that. I just got this. I got this. Oh, yeah. Like, what is this? I'm too old for it. I'm too young. I don't know. What is this thing? Like, I sounds like, what, what the do hell I do with it? Yeah. yeah, seriously. There's nowhere to stick this. Yeah, where do I put it? I know. I feel bad. Some, you know, sometimes even, you know, somebody gives me a CD of their band and I'm like, cool, man. Thanks. And my first thought is like, I don't own a CD player anymore. Yeah, our computers don't even have the... They don't even have the drive. <laughs> totally. When I got my latest car, um, I think it's the first car I've ever owned that um i don't even know if there's a cd changer if there is i don't i don't know <laughs> never never even looked i don't know maybe there is you know far a, a long way from the uh this car's got like a 24 disc you know get in the yeah. trunk and load them all yeah. up exactly so awesome man well um yeah have a good rest of your night and uh thanks again thank you thank you so much i really appreciate all your support and uh be well and be safe likewise man 